You know, you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and you see from the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And God, through Genesis, lines out very specifically and very intentionally the divine design that he had when he purposed the world that we know today. And when he created what we know today as the world that you and I live in, he created this perfect ecosystem. An ecosystem that is so knitly entwined and joined together that every single element of his design fulfills a specific purpose. Everything. Nothing that he knitted together and that he created when he had in mind this ecosystem called planet Earth when he created it. He did it haphazardly. He did it unintentionally. No, he did it very intentionally, very very strategically and very purposefully and every aspect of his creation sort of weaves its way into each other complementing what we know today as an ecosystem that supports and sustains life. Everything God creates or God has created was created for a specific purpose. Now I know you're probably wondering, well, what's the purpose of Canadian geese who never fly north during the, the non-winter months. Aren't you wondering about that? There are other things that you're wondering about. Not sure what the purpose of some things are, but God did make everything, designed everything in this ecosystem for a specific and very unique purpose. With that in mind, the divine designer created you for a specific purpose. You are not an accident. Irregardless of what the circumstances are surrounding your life, your conception, or your birth, you are not an accident. God had in mind, he envisioned, he imagined what he wanted to accomplish through a human being. And because of that, he designed you, he knitted you together inside of your mother's womb, designing, intricately placing, implementing all of the elements that were necessary for you to become and for you to be the beautiful person that you are today. Turn to the person to your right or to your left and look at the beauty of God's creation. All right, some of you are more beautiful than others, I agree. But nevertheless, God created each and every one of us to fulfill a specific purpose. He had in mind what he wanted to do, what he wanted to accomplish, the purpose that he wanted or intended to do, and he created you, uniquely you, for that purpose. What I have for us today is I have sort of a a visual object, I have a stool. Now, this stool did not make itself, did it? Well, that's kind of dumb. It's not live. But even if it had life, it cannot create itself. A stool cannot create itself any more than you and I can create ourselves. And this stool was designed by a creator. They imagined in their mind what they were going to create, what was needed to be done, what was purposed, what was intended. They wanted to sit not only comfortably, but they wanted to sit secure. This doesn't have three legs. Why is that? A stool with three legs is less secure than one with four. Can we agree on that? The only three-legged stool that I know of is a milking stool. Anybody here milk cows this morning? No. I have one in my house, by the way. A four-legged stool 
He created four legs because four legs create stability and security, and he designed it, he manufactured this in order to fulfill a specific purpose. Like we, we have four elements, four legs that define our life purpose. We've narrowed them down to four. To know Christ, to follow Christ, to serve Christ, and to share Christ. Just four. Know Christ, follow Christ, serve Christ, and share Christ. Four. Four very different, very strategic elements wrapped around our specific purpose. And for today, we are going to look at, number one, to know Christ. We start with knowing Christ. That's where it starts. That is the foundation that everything else is built upon. If you don't know Christ, you cannot follow Christ, you cannot serve Christ, and you cannot share Christ. Many attempt to do those three things without knowing Christ, but you cannot do them without knowing Christ. For us to understand what it means to know Christ, we have to go back to Genesis again and to understand that in the beginning, not only did God create the heavens and the earth, but he also created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he placed them in a garden. And all of us us in here have been to Sunday school, we have been through life group, we have been through Bible studies, we've sat in worship services, we know what happened to Adam and Eve, right? They were told as they were placed in the garden of Eve, do not eat from the forbidden fruit, and they did anyway. And as a result of doing that, what had to happen? An animal was required to offer as a sacrifice its own skin so that God could take the skin of that animal that was slaughtered and cover up their nakedness, their shame, their sin. That's where it begins, with Adam and Eve. Later on in the New Testament, to make a long story short, God informs Moses that he is to implement what we call a sacrificial system, and that sacrificial system is to include what they are going to call, or we know today as a scapegoat, unlike one politician who kind of somewhat got it wrong, but somewhat got it right. A scapegoat was something that became sin for the one that was offering that animal on the altar and gave its life for the forgiveness of the sin of the one who offered the sacrifice. That was the Old Testament sacrificial system. There was a scapegoat. They put that goat on the altar, sacrificed it. It gave its life so that in that death, their sin and their shame could be covered by its blood. To make another long story short, decades, centuries later, Jesus comes on the scene to be the ultimate and the final sacrifice that would take upon himself our sin against God through faith in that sacrificial system where he himself would die in our place and absolve our sins and atone for our sins, those sins that separated us from the very beginning because the sin of one man, all of us became sinners. To atone for that sin so that we might, through forgiveness of that sin, be reconciled with God the Father and have a love relationship with him. You cannot know God apart from Christ. And so in order for us to be reconciled in a right relationship with Christ, we have to first, to God, the Father, we have to know Jesus Christ. There lies our first and very primary foundational principle that I want to look at today, to know Christ. Now, in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives us some beautiful insight in regard to what it means to know Christ. 
And there are two aspects and two elements to this knowledge of Christ. There is something that we gain, and there is something that becomes a goal in knowing Christ. Today, I want to look at both very quickly. Number one, let's look at the gain in knowing Christ. What do we gain when we know Christ? What is there to gain? Now, he puts it very simplistic. Now, the reason why I started the last two Sundays where we did is because I wanted to build up to this particular point. Because two Sundays ago, we talked about carrying your cross, and we talked about the sacrifice. And unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow Christ, you couldn't become a Christ follower. You can't become a disciple. It's not an easy thing to follow Jesus. There's going to involve sacrifice and surrender and even persecution. And so we must, like Jesus, take up our cross. Last Sunday, we talked about giving him our everything. The disciples, when they were called to follow Jesus, they gave up everything to follow him. There is a cost involved in following Christ. But Paul is here to tell us today, there's also a gain in following Christ. There is is some stuff that we lose, some things that we forfeit, some things we consider lost. But in compared to what we gain, we gain so much more than what we have lost. And the Apostle Paul is sort of trying to describe for his readers, you gain more than you lose when you follow Jesus as your Savior and trust him as your Lord. Number one, case in point, verse 7. He gains sufficiency. That's the first gain, sufficiency. What do I mean by that? Let's take a look at the verse. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain, he talks about whatever gain. You got to understand the Apostle Paul when, he, when he's saved. Um, he's not a typical unbeliever. Uh, the Apostle Paul is a, is a man who has been on a quest. He has been on a journey his whole life to attain perfection. He is a perfectionist. Some of you think you're a perfectionist. You don't compare to the Apostle Paul. He is OCD 125% in the quest to become and to live a perfect life. Perfect. I, I, I think I knew some people at one time who were probably pretty close to the Apostle Paul. A guy one time who, who had all of his shirts faced the same way and the whites and the blues and the greens and they were all color coordinated. You know what I'm talking? You know, do anybody know anybody? Like, you live with somebody like that? Bob, are you like that? Norma's pointing to you, brother. I'm sorry for you, Norma. And... <laughs> And in his quest for perfection, he was keeping a ledger. He was keeping score. He had a spreadsheet, and he was putting down all of the gains that he had made, all of the progress that he had made in becoming perfect. He was a Pharisee, a student of the law, an interpreter of the law, an enforcer of the law. And he lived by the law from the time he was a little bitty fella. He began to study the law and began to apply the law to his life, and he believed that righteousness was attained by keeping the letter of the law. And he had gained incredible strides, immeasurable progress. And he was receiving not only applause from men, but he believed he was receiving the approval of God. And he thought God was going, yay, Paul. When he came to faith in Christ, he counted all of that 
lifelong effort of seeking perfection as lost compared to the sufficiency that he found in Jesus. I think deep down underneath, Paul and all his applause and accolades and the thought that he was approved by God, he deep down in his heart knew he wasn't sufficiently adequate to earn or to gain God's approval. And that's why he continued on that quest. And I wonder how many sleepless nights he had wondering, is God approving of me? But in Christ, he found sufficient approval. He didn't have to live that way anymore. For in the sufficiency of Christ, he also found in verse 8, significance in Christ. Take a look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count everything, everything as lost. The Apostle Paul earlier used whatever, and that whatever was a, a word that described the, 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 the accolades and the applause that he had received in verses 1 through 3 about his pedigree and his uh, political gain and his position in the church and his, and his view of the law and all that. But now he's saying, you know, all of that stuff, we could all say, you know what, that, that stuff's not worth anything. But now he says, not only is that not worth anything, but let me put everything else there. Everything else that this world has to offer. Anything that would permit me from, from accepting Christ. Whatever the world tries to sell us has worth and has value. Let me put all of that to the flesh and my carnal nature and my eyes see and my ears hear and my heart desire. Let me put all of that and let me just lump it together under that word. Everything and everything else. I count everything else as a loss. For what? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Christ was worth more to the Apostle Paul than anything this world had to offer that self could accomplish or any church could give him. Christ was worth it all. That was the gain. It was this incredible significance found not in his self-worth, but in Christ's worth. And I think there are a lot of believers today who never get there. They never get there. There was a time and a moment in my life where I had to finally realize when I was in my mid-30s, I'm not valuable to God because of what I do. I have value to him because of who I am in Christ. He is my significance. You put men in a room and you take away what they do, they have nothing to talk about. We are not worth anything to God because of what we do, but because what has been done and our significance, our value, our worth is in Christ. And in Christ we have and we possess the value of Christ's worth. And Christ was worth it all. He put all of that stuff that he had accomplished. He was a wealthy dude. I mean, he, had, he was a Pharisee. He had a lot of stuff. And he said, you know what? All of that is not worth anything compared to knowing Christ. So he had not only sufficiency and significance, but the third gain that I find in this text is salvation. Salvation. Because you see, the sufficiency and the significance led to salvation. Back to verse 8. You're running a little bit ahead of me on the screen. Thank you. 
I indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Notice he says in the second part of the verse, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. For his sake, who's he talking about? For Christ's sake, I have suffered. That word suffered is a word that means forfeit. The Apostle Paul was willing to forfeit the loss of all things. And he counted them as rubbish. Went to the zoo last Thursday. Now, some of you are going to think this is gross, but this is the Apostle Paul's word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not mine, because the word rubbish means poop. It does. They try to soften it with the word rubbish or the word garbage, but it means animal waste. And we went to the zoo and we saw the rhinos with my four grandchildren from Texas last Thursday. Beautiful day, 76. What happened to that? This is Kansas, right? Yeah. And they had not cleaned the stall. And it was horrid. One of them had had a movement, and it was nasty. And I thought about this text as I was walking, trying to walk past that. I mean, it almost made you throw up. Seriously. And the Apostle Paul is saying that all of this stuff that I have accumulated and all this applause and all of this worldly stuff, all of that is like rhino poop compared to what I've gained in Christ. You want to know what I've gained in Christ? I've gained salvation. Because when you have Christ... You have salvation. And that's what he gained. He gained salvation. How could he gain salvation? Because he found a security in a righteousness that was not his own. Notice verse 9. And he said, I want to be found in him. To be found in him. To be positioned in him. Because I want to be found in him. Notice not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's saying, hey, I've tried it my way. Kind of like the song, he did it his way. He tried it his way. He was searching and seeking for righteousness. He was seeking a, a way to God, and he knew that the only way to God was, was to live righteously, was to live holy, was to be separated from sin. And he had tried his whole life to be that. He was a Pharisee. There were only 6,000 of those, and they were students of the law, interpreters of the law. But they were very progressive in the fact that if, uh, if there was a, a, a dynamic that changed or there was a circumstance that changed or a new insight, then all of a sudden the law would change to fit the circumstance of the situation. Does that sound like today? They had two laws. They had the oral law and the written law. And the oral law was as important as the written law. And they were subject to change if the circumstances of the elements or the dynamics of the culture changed and they could have new insights and new revelations. And so they were constantly moving and changing the law. And he was seeking then, I think, to provide a righteousness so he could have a right standing before God. And so knowing that that right standing with God would give him favor to God and would ultimately grant him salvation. And so he was placing himself in this self-righteous insecurity that he knew deep down in his gut wasn't cutting the mark. It wasn't making it with God. But when he came to Christ, what he's saying here is, when I came to Christ, 
this righteousness, this self-righteousness I had worked my whole life for and probably decades he's been living for this and, and, and investing and, and working for this self-righteousness, he stepped away from his own self-righteousness and into Christ's righteousness. God lifted him out of his self-righteousness and planted him in a position before God of Christ's righteousness. It is a position given to him by God because of his faith in Christ. He put his faith in Christ, and God lifted him out of that self-righteousness that accomplishes absolutely nothing and doesn't give him any favor and any standing with God of any kind except condemnation because he can't live by the letter of the law. The reason that God gave the law was to highlight and point out our sin and our need for a savior. And so he, he lifted him out of that and God planted him, not Paul planted himself, but God planted him in a position of Christ's righteousness that would be forever sealed and secured. He could never and will never be able to lose that position of Christ's righteousness because he had put his faith and his trust in Jesus. Paul is giving us a self-portrait here in Philippians 3, 1 through 9. It's what we call a testimony today. You know what a testimony is? It's somebody who, who was living a certain life and all of a sudden God interrupted their life and they saw their sin and realized Christ was the solution to their sin and they turned through repentance to Christ and trusted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior and it's that, that great exchange. They were living this life and now because of Christ they're living this life. I remember years ago when I was a student pastor and we had, oh I don't know, hundreds of students and we called them all night lock-ins back then. Um, and uh, uh, we're talking hundreds, and we had this large assembly, and this guy got up, and for about 20 minutes of his testimony, he talked about all of the bad stuff that he did, and then about five minutes, what Jesus did. And um, when he got done, I got up, and I said, you know, guys, I'm sorry for this testimony. <laughs> Let me tell you what a better testimony is. I didn't do all of this. But somehow I realized that even though I didn't do all of that, I was still a sinner in need of a Savior, and I plus placed my faith and trust in Jesus. Because I think sometimes when people share their testimonies, you have a tendency to believe sometimes if you hadn't done all that kind of stuff that you don't have a testimony worthwhile. I got to have shot somebody or, you know, guzzled so many gallons of beer or shot up so many, you know, shots of LSD or whatever, and then all of a sudden I got saved and now I'm this. You ever felt like that sometimes? Paul wasn't like that at all. Paul was a, a, an unusual kind to, to convert to Christianity. He was a do-gooder. I mean, he was the kind of neighbor you want, or maybe the kind of neighbor you hate because his yard was immaculate. You know what I'm saying? Some of you guys are fanatics. You've already cut your grass, and you've already seeded your grass, and you've already um, uh, put the fertilizer down. Anybody know anybody like that? Live next, any, anybody like that here? Come on. Pastor, confess. They're do-gooders. And all of a sudden, he realized in all of his accomplishments, his achievements, he wasn't good enough. And he was willing to lay everything down turned his back on it and considered as rhino poop 
in order to gain all of the blessings and the beauty of a life found in Christ. It cost him everything. But as he kept a ledger and weighed it out on a scale, you know what I'm saying? He weighed it out on a scale. He said, you know, the world tells me that this is the most valuable, most important thing in the world, but I'm telling you that isn't what it is compared to what I have found in Christ. When you put it on a scale, Christ's gain outweighs the world's loss every day of the week. It's worth it, he's saying to the Philippians. It's worth it, he's saying to us today. So we've talked about the gain. Let's talk about the goal. Here's the goal in one verse, verse 10. We gain a lot, but when we come to know Christ, we only gain some things. But there are, there are some objectives. There, there's something that Paul wants as he grows to know Christ personally. He's placed his faith and trust in Christ. He's turned from his old life and turned to Jesus and placed his faith and trust in him, and he knows him, but now he wants to get to know him even better, even deeper, even more than what he originally has known him so far. It's a lifelong quest for the Apostle Paul. It's not something you're going to do in five minutes, guys. For those of us who are not built for relationships, it's a lifelong journey, a lifelong quest. It's a lifelong goal. As long as you have life, as long as you have breath, as long as you're on this planet, this should be our goal once we come to faith in Jesus, to know him deeper and more fully. Notice the goal of knowing Christ, beginning with verse 10. The goal is to pursue intimacy with him. Goal number one, there are five of them. Goal number one, personal intimacy with Jesus. He said that I may know him, that I may know him. And I kind of scratched my head and I go, well, wait a minute, doesn't the apostle Paul already know him? Well, yeah, he knows him as his savior and he knows him as his Lord, but he wants to really get to know him know him. There is a, a desire for a deeper, more influential, more lasting, more everything than what he presently knows Christ. And I think the danger is that there's so many people today that once they come to faith in Jesus and say, you know what, I've prayed the prayer and I know him as my Savior and, and, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to make him my Lord, but I know him as my Savior and, and I'm satisfied with that. I don't really want to go any deeper. I don't want to really know him any fuller. I'm okay with just an acquaintance of Jesus as long as it's enough to get me into heaven when I die. What if, what if, what if your spouse said that to you when they walked down the aisle and said, you know what, this is, this is the limit to our relationship here. I'm going to commit myself to you for the rest of my life, but don't talk to me. Don't relate to me. Not interested in a relationship. I just want to be married. There are Christians like that. They never open their Bible. They never pray. They never attend a church service. They never go to life group. They're okay with Christ as long as they have salvation. But to know him, that's not my desire. 
and they dust their Bibles off on Sunday morning when they dare to get up in time to go to church and they put it under their arm and they put on that holier-than-thou look and they pretend in this facade that God sees the heart and he knows you're not really interested in knowing me. Goal number two, to know Christ is to know the power over sin. To know power over sin. Notice he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That word and is a conjunction. It links what Paul says under inspiration of the Holy Spirit with what he has just said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. When I know Christ, I want to know the power of his resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated the power of self, Satan, and sin. It is defeated. And when we come to faith in Christ and he removes us from this self-righteousness that gets us nowhere and positions us into this permanent righteousness that we have in Christ, he positions us practically, meaning that once we've been positioned in Christ's likeness, doesn't mean that we still don't struggle with self. Some of us as Christians can be the most selfish people on the planet. And we have got to learn that Christ put us in this position of righteousness to practically live out the Christian life. To, as we come into a deeper communion and relationship with Jesus, he shows us where our self is actively working and where sin is rising to the occasion. And we must then, in the power that we have in Jesus, say no to temptation and defeat and overcome self and destroy the work of the devil power that we have through faith in Christ. Well, pursuing personal intimacy, power over sin. Number three, knowing Christ gives us a purpose in suffering. Anybody here suffering today because you've been following Jesus? There's a purpose for your suffering. He says that you may share that you have fellowship in the suffering of Jesus. Because Jesus suffered for righteousness, you are suffering in the fellowship of righteousness and you are fellowshipping with him in that suffering there's a purpose for our suffering and the suffering that he's talking about here is a suffering for righteousness you're taking a position to stand in following Jesus and in following Jesus there's suffering that's brought upon your life because of that well, not only do we pursue personal intimacy and the power of sin the purpose of suffering but also progression in likeness of Jesus notice the progression sharing his suffering why to become like him in his death to become like him, to be formed, to be shaped, to be reflective of his image in and through our lives. And this reflection is not an outward reflection. It's not something that we put on like a, like a mask or like a, a costume at Halloween time. But it's a reflection of the image of Christ. There's an image of Jesus. And as we are moving in and through this suffering and, and, and gaining power over sin, uh, we are moving into the likeness of Jesus. And that's the objective, the goal of our knowing him is so that we might become like him and the more I know him the more I am challenged to become like him and the closer I get to him the more I see that I am not like him isn't that interesting I get close to his image and I see things and they reflect back into my life and I say you know I'm not like that at all I have one or two choices I can walk away and forget what I saw and let the spinach exist on my teeth and pretend it's not there or I can confront the reality of what I have seen and change myself to reflect that image 
become like him. Inside, not just outside, but there's an inner transformation that needs to take place from inside the heart so that then it reflects itself from the outside. The Apostle Paul had the outside pretty, and all the people were going, yay for you. That Sunday morning platform thing, look at me, I'm living for Jesus. Wow, Monday through Saturday, man. Reflect the image of Christ. And number five, there's a prospect of eternity. Notice he says in verse 11 that, my, that by any means possible. Paul is not doubting in this text, in this little phrase, by any means possible. I believe that many of the scholars are right that I read this week. It's a sign of humility from the Apostle Paul. He's not about to say, you know, put any boldness behind any brass, any, any pride, any ego, because he knows that, that it's not about him that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He was focusing his life on the future where he was headed. For one of these days, the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we will be forever with the Lord. Later on, he says, he wants to stand before Jesus. He knows the end is coming and he wants to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have fought a good fight. You have run a good race. You have finished your course. Now enter into the kingdom that I have prepared for you. Take your Bible as we close in Genesis chapter 3. I want to read this very quickly in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now as the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. Notice this, who was with her at the time. He's not just sort of on a limb. He's an accomplice, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. How foolish is that? Hiding from God? But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? Don't miss that. The Lord God called to them. Where are you? It's not because he didn't know. He wanted them to come out from hiding. He was calling them. And from the time when man fell in the garden, God has been pursuing a love relationship with him by calling our names so that he, as we answer that call, can reconcile us in the sin that has separated us from him and fulfill the call, the purpose for which we were created.
I ask you as we close, how's your relationship with Jesus? Would you define or describe it as intimate, personal? It is foundational. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and turned from all of this that the world has to offer and all that you think you've accumulated and all that you've gained and you weigh it out and compare to what Christ has given, you say, you know what? That is nothing but rhino poop compared to what I get when I trust in Jesus. And you turn your back on that and what we call repentance and you trust Jesus as your Savior and commit to him the leadership of your life. Have you done that first? If you've not done that, you can't follow him, you can't serve him, you can't share him because you don't know him. 39 years ago, I walked the aisle at Lake Highlands Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas and committed my life as best I knew how to a woman that I thought I loved named Patty Willen Easley. Did I know her 39 plus years ago? On that moment? No. We had only dated four months. Everybody went, <gasps> four months. I was in a hurry. 39 years plus later, can we admit and agree that I know her now? I know her. She knows me, and she still lives with me. But we know each other. Why? Because we have walked together, not just in a head knowledge, but experiencing life together in knowing him. That knowing is an experiential knowledge of daily walking in communion and fellowship with Jesus. You have come to know him personally. You've walked an aisle and trusted him as your Savior and committed to him before family and friends. From now on, I'm going to be a devoted Christ follower. And you walked out the door. But how intimate do you know him? How deep do you know him? I'm talking to a generation a little bit older than me. It's not all about this. Let me say that again. It's not all about this. It's about an inner life change where there's transformational truth existing and developing in your life where daily you're experiencing the knowledge of Him as you follow Him, serve Him, and share Him. Let's pray.